Good morning, Restoration. Uh, it's good to be here with you today. I'm excited to fill in for Ryan this weekend and talk a little bit about our next passage. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Randy McNeil. My wife and I have been attending Restoration for about six years now, and I've gotten to participate in the preaching team and, and preach on occasion here and there. And it's always a fun uh, experience when I do that. For me, my day job is as a Bible teacher and director of student life at a local Christian high school. And so I'm in charge of our chapels, our events, and then teach a couple Bible classes. And we're actually currently in my classroom right now. And it's fitting that this is the setting that we're in because a little bit later, we're going to be talking about one of the subjects that I teach, apologetics or a defense of the faith. So one of the classes that I get to teach mostly um, to, to sophomores and juniors um, is how they can defend their faith, how they can know that what they believe is true. And we're going to get into that a little bit later, so it's fun to be in this setting. Uh, and I know there's probably a couple questions that you're wondering right now. One, um, does he always wear a bow tie to work? And the answer is, on most days, yes. But more importantly, did I tie this myself? And yes, yes I did. Um, I love bow ties, I love tying them myself. Um, it's kind of a, a place of, of, of pride for me, I guess, but that's for a different day. So as we move into this chapter in Mark 6, I want to be a little bit cautious about how we look at it because this passage can be twisted and used to say things that it never meant to say or, or even in hurtful ways. It, it, it can hurt people by, by how we twist it. So here's what I'm not going to say about the concept of faith in this passage today. I'm not going to say that in order to be healed, you need to have more faith. But I'm also not going to say that faith and healing don't have any correlation at all. This is one of those both and kind of deals. Uh, and so we, we can't come to this passage looking for some prescription or some formula um, that is true all of the time. Because if we do, we're going to be left frustrated and wanting. So stick with me as we unpack this. Most of you have probably already read this passage in your house church, but if you haven't, I'm going to read it right now. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and I'll be reading from the NIV. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And so what I want to do today is go verse by verse at first and kind of unpack the, the overarching story and get us into the context of what's actually happening. This gives us a better picture of the dynamic that Jesus is working with. And then the story naturally leads uh, to some, some important questions that I think we have um, to ask and then discuss if you are in a house church today. So verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Now Mark doesn't mention in this passage that the hometown that Jesus goes to is Nazareth. 
But we know that it's Nazareth because Mark has mentioned it before. And other Gospels, when they tell this story, specifically in Matthew and in Luke, they mention the town of Nazareth specifically. So we know that Nazareth is Jesus' hometown, and that's the place that Mark is referring. In addition, when it makes clear that, that Jesus' disciples are going with him, that's an important thing for us to notice. Because you would only have disciples if you were a rabbi. And so Jesus going home with his disciples gives us a clue that Jesus is a rabbi. He's a religious teacher um, recognized in his day. Verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? So coming back home with his disciples, Jesus is asked to speak in the synagogue as you would um, uh, an honorable rabbi. You would, you would give this honor to a rabbi. And when the people hear him speak, they are utterly amazed. And the line of questioning that they have starts out innocent enough with, with kind of wonder about the wisdom that Jesus has and, and, and even more the rumors they've heard of his miracles. Because up to this point, Jesus hasn't performed any miracles in Nazareth, so they've only heard about them. But the line of questioning quickly turns to suspicion, maybe even with a little bit of contempt. In verse 3, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now there's a lot here. First, let's start with the tone. It's more than a little sus about where Jesus got all this wisdom and power. The people actually take offense at it. They get a little indignant that this guy has all this going on for him. And the conclusion they come to is not that, oh, clearly he must be the son of God. It's much more sinister than that. Likely, what they begin to assume is that Jesus must be in league with the devil or some kind of evil spirits. Because how else would he be able to have this power? After all, isn't he just a carpenter? Well, actually, no, um, he, he's not. You see, years ago, I heard someone say, nowhere in the entirety of Scripture does it say that Jesus was a carpenter, only his father, Joseph. And this always made sense to me, because clearly Jesus is a rabbi, and he's recognized as a rabbi. I mean, other rabbis call him rabbi or teacher. And so clearly Jesus is a rabbi, not a carpenter. And so I've started saying that for years, too, only to open this passage and wonder, was I wrong? Luckily, uh, I was right. Or rather, the person who said it, and I've been repeating it for years, was right. Um, and here's how this works. You see, in every other story, in every other telling of this story, Matthew and Luke, it refers to Joseph as the carpenter. Mark is the only one with the variant reading, as we call it. And there's good reason for that. So Origen is a third century theologian, and he got into an argument because Jesus was accused of only being a carpenter. And so Origen uh, is the original one who claimed that Jesus was never designated a carpenter. And that's why Matthew and Luke clarify that it was Joseph who was referred to as the carpenter and not Jesus. Jesus' father was the carpenter. So why then doesn't Mark follow suit? Well, at that time, there's a lot of controversy over the virgin birth. 
So likely in order to protect the dogma, um, Mark keeps the variant reading and, and preserves an integral part of our theology. But that's not all Mark does for us. He also shows how derogatory this story is when it refers to Jesus as just a carpenter. Jesus is just commonplace. He's not of any sort of standing, and he doesn't have much expected of him. In addition, by removing Joseph from the equation, Mark points out a key insight that we may overlook. Joseph was not Jesus' father. Mary was his mother. But for all intents and purposes, Jesus doesn't have a father. And it wouldn't be right in this culture, in this time, to refer to someone as their mother's son. And this isn't just some kind of try like mama's boy insult. This is an accusation of you don't even know who your father is. And the people in Nazareth don't stop there. They bring his entire family into it. His brothers by name and his sisters unnamed. And the inference here is that his siblings aren't much either. And we know them. And it makes you wonder, why don't they know Jesus? Right? If Jesus really grew up there, then why aren't they questioning him based on what they saw in him as he was growing up? Why do they have to use his family against him? Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. I wonder if you've experienced this, right? Maybe you've gone home, maybe around the holidays, and everyone treats you like the same person they've always known, right? Maybe you've actually had a significant transformation in your life and you're a completely different person, but they don't really let you off the hook for who you once were. I hear this story a lot when it comes to people taking care of their elderly parents because their parents just treat them like they don't know anything. It doesn't matter that they've raised their own kids and, and now are the ones responsible for caring for their, their, their aging parents. Um, it's hard for people to see us as different and as transformed um, when they knew us back when. Now, Mark is the only author that includes all three categories of town, family, and home. The others only mention town and home, and they leave out family completely. But this seems to parallel Mark 3.21, when his family is trying to pull him out of a house and say he, they say of Jesus that he's out of his mind. Or later, when Jesus is told, hey, your mother and your brothers are here, and Jesus says, who are my mother? Or sorry, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? I tell you, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there's an indictment on those closest to Jesus. They should have known him, and yet they rejected him. And so this is a foreshadowing of what is also to come. Uh, as it says in John 1, He, Jesus, came to his own, but his own did not know him. Do you ever wonder why it is that the people that were supposed to know Jesus, the people who had all the signs and all the clues, are also the ones who in the end reject him. There's more to this verse. But in order to get to it, we have to move to Luke and how the story is told in Luke's gospel. You see, Luke gives us context behind Jesus' saying a prophet is not without honor except in his, his hometown and his family. And uh, it actually comes from a saying 
from 6th century BCE um, that said, Physician, physician, heal thine own limp. And it's made popular or possibly originated uh, in Aesop's fables, specifically the frog and the fox, where the frog comes out and he proclaims to all the other animals that he can cure any illness, any disease. He has the ability to do it all. And the fox looks at the frog and sees his awkward back legs and the spots and nasty skin and says, if you can heal everyone else, why not start with yourself? And so this phrase is akin to um, the pot calling the kettle black, right? Or just plain old hypocrisy. So the people are thinking, and Jesus is, is, is speaking is what they're thinking. Um, Jesus, why don't you show us some miracles? We've heard you've done this everywhere else. Why don't you prove to us that you can do this? And Jesus um, answers them, their, their, their thinking at least, uh, in a way that gets them pretty angry. So angry, in fact, that Luke records that at this point, they want to run Jesus out of town. So they run him up to the top of a hill, and they are ready to push him off. But then Luke, in verse 30, says this, But he walked right through the crowd and went away. Just like that. Jesus just walked away. Right? Can you imagine people standing there like, where the, where to go? He, he was just here a minute ago. Didn't you see him? You're standing right next to me. But this is one of those moments where Jesus just walks right on through. And this takes us to the most confusing part of our passage today in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. This is tough. Jesus could not do any miracles, except heal some people. Uh, apparently healing sick people wasn't a big deal anymore. I mean, not like when he turned water to wine or eventually brought someone back from the dead. It raises the question, though. If Jesus is God, can't Jesus do anything? I want to say yes. And I want to say no. So I guess I'll say I don't know. Um, as I was writing this, I had so many thoughts in my head on, on, bo on both sides of this, this, this equation. Uh, and my head just kind of became this huge jumbled mess as I thought about it. And trust me, you don't want any part of that mess. So I wonder if maybe this is something we could talk about in house church today. And see if you can come up with anything. I think if I had more time on this subject, I would end up right here in the same place. And so I want to caution your discussion today and be weary of anyone who claims to know the answer to this. Because both sides have potential to be hurtful. We'll talk about that um, in, in, in a second. But I don't want because I don't want to leave you hanging on this subject. So I can offer you all I can an apology. And by that, I mean a defense of the faith, specifically that of miracles, um, the validity of miracles. After all, we are in my apologetics classroom. So just to warn you, what I'm about to teach you is going to be overwhelming. And that's actually the point. So bear with me. And even if you don't remember anything that I'm about to say, you will at least get the point that I'm trying um, to, to, to get across to you. You see, a lot of people 
choose not to believe in the Bible because of all the crazy stories that are out there. I mean, a guy spends three days in the belly of a fish and lives? Come on. It's a whale of a tale if I've ever heard one. But here's the great thing that I teach my students. You actually don't need the Bible to prove miracles happen. Here's how you do it. You start with proving uh, that a creator started everything. And we call this uh, the cosmological argument, or how I like to think of it, the cause of the universe beginning. And it goes like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, and therefore the universe has a cause. Now we know that it's true that anything that has a beginning has a cause. Because we don't see random things just popping up all over the place all the time. Something has to cause them to begin. And so the question is whether or not the universe has a beginning. Because if it did, then it has a cause. Now there are five great pieces of evidence for the beginning of the universe that are accepted by most scientific communities. But for time's sake and to not melt your brains, I'm only going to share you my favorite two. Share with you my favorite two. The first one is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm much more of a philosophy guy than a science guy, so this is going to be in layman's terms. I mean, one of the things I know um, about the second law of thermodynamics, frankly, it's the only thing that I know about the second law of thermodynamics, is it's this. The universe is running out of usable energy. Every moment that passes uses energy, and the amount we have is dwindling. If the universe did not have a beginning, meaning the universe is eternal, then that energy would have run out a long time ago. The very fact that we are using up our energy points to a fixed point in time where that energy consumption began. The second way we talk about a beginning is that we know that the universe is actually expanding. When Edwin Hubble looked in his telescope, he observed this happening. The universe is growing outward, and if it is growing outward, it is growing outward from a fixed point in space and time. It had to begin somewhere. Now, there's a theory out there that tries to suggest that the universe is just constantly expanding and contracting, uh, but the biggest problem with this is we only observe it expanding. We don't observe it contracting. So we go with what we can see. So both of these pieces of evidence confirm that the universe began at some point. And these are widely accepted among science people, who, and so we can agree with them um, that the universe has a beginning. But the objection comes, so then who or what caused God? But remember, only things with a beginning need a cause. Because God is eternal, meaning no beginning, then that God can begin the universe. And that beginner would need to be all-powerful and outside of space and time. So why couldn't that be God? It's at least as probable as any other theory out there. But that's not enough, right? When you think about how fine-tuned the earth is for life, we have more evidence of, of, of a creator. Right? If, the, if the axis of the earth is off just a little bit of a tilt, we couldn't exist. If oxygen or CO2 levels were, 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 were dialed it's slightly different, we couldn't live. And if the moon and other planets weren't interacting with earth as they do, then we wouldn't exist. 
In fact, there are 122 of these types of things that make life on earth actual, actually livable. And the probability of this all happening by chance is infinitesimally small. It's more probable to say that a being we don't understand made it all and created it this way. But people want to get hung up on this. They want to say, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's the multiverse theory. That explains everything, right? And this theory has been made popular by CW shows like The Flash, Green Arrow, Supergirl. And it's a theory that states that there are an infinite number of universes out there. And in an infinite number of universes, every single possibility exists. We just happen to live in the one where uh, we can live. Now, set aside for a moment, let's, 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 let's say for a moment that this, this is true. And we set aside the fact that, well, there's no evidence for it. It's way too broad. The fact that you have an infinite amount of finite things is actually a contradiction. Um, and in order for these universes to get started, there would need, well, fine-tuning. Setting all that aside. If there are an infinite number of possibilities, that means that every possibility exists, including one where there is a God who sends his son Jesus to this earth in order to save his people from their sins. So you can see things like the multiverse theory or, or, or things like, um, like, like Einstein's um, you know, second law of thermodynamics, right? Or the fact that the universe is made, all these scientific things actually point us to a creator. So if you're still with me, maybe you're wondering, okay, 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 I get it. How does this have to do with miracles? What does this have to do with miracles? And I say, well, everything. We've just proven with science, not the Bible, that there is a creator of this universe. And this creator would have to be incredibly powerful. And if something can create a life-sustaining universe that we live in, is it really that much further of a leap to believe that creator could defy the laws of nature? I mean, after all, that creator created those laws. Or think of it this way. Perhaps the laws of nature aren't actually laws. They're really just our observation. For instance, let's say that I drop this pin. The law of gravity will cause it to fall. But if I catch this pin, with my other hand, I have now defied the law of gravity. Or at least how we observe gravity. Look, there's so much evidence out there for a creator and, and, and so much evidence for the Bible being true. And in fact, there's so much evidence that I really don't think it takes much faith to believe it at all. At least not the faith like we've become accustomed. Verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Faith in this context, and in all other places of the New Testament, by the way, comes from the Greek word pistis. And this word means believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Or it could mean trust, confidence, reliability, fidelity. There are other words in, in the Greek language for what we call faith. Like nomizo. And, and nomizo is believing something because you've been raised up that way. Your family believes it. But this word is not used in the Greek New Testament. So believing in Jesus because you were raised that way or because your parents believe it is not biblical faith. Biblical faith 
is Matthew twenty two thirty seven, 37, where we are called to love God with all of our mind. Or Acts 1, 3, where Jesus gives convincing proofs that he was actually alive. Or Romans 14, 5, which says, let everyone be convinced in their own mind. And if you read the works of Paul, he's constantly persuading and reasoning and, 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 and telling people all the evidence that there is for Jesus' reality. And so whenever the New Testament refers to faith, it uses the word pistis. And in this way, it demands that we have a reason for why we believe. And when you consider evidence, even from science, faith in this way becomes a very short leap indeed. And maybe that's why Jesus was so amazed that the people of Nazareth don't have it. Because it was so clear. They should have known. I wonder if it wasn't that Jesus couldn't do miracles, but if it was because he knew that they wouldn't believe anyways. Later on, the Pharisees will ask for a sign and, and after seeing all that Jesus did. And even after seeing all that Jesus did, they still don't believe. So I'd like to suggest that maybe that's why we don't see miracles today. Even just some healing of sick people. Perhaps we have too many reasons to not believe. Earlier this week, I was texting Ryan, and, and he told me that he had a fever the past four days. And so I told him, I, I'm going to pray that the fever breaks tonight. And it did. Now, it's entirely possible that this is just the progression of the virus. And, and after four days, your fever breaks. But it's also just as possible, or even more so, that it was God. Or take this, for instance. My daughters, um, they, they sometimes they struggle to sleep. And a while back, I decided to just start praying for them. And when I started praying for them, as I was putting them down, they would fall asleep and stay asleep. That night and then many subsequent nights later. Then I'd forget and they would start struggling again. And then I'd remember and I'd pray and they would start sleeping again. And then sometimes I would pray and then it felt like they were up the entire night. In fact, just this morning, my daughter reminded me that I didn't pray for her last night, and that's why she had trouble sleeping. It's not a formula for success, but sometimes prayer works. That's what I'm learning right now, uh, and what's on my mind with this passage. What if we are like the people of Nazareth, and we've become so accustomed to life without Jesus that we don't notice him around us every day? What if miracles are happening all around us, but we don't see it because we can easily explain it away. What if Jesus has become too common for us and we take for granted the power that is available? Again, Scripture says it both ways. Sometimes by faith people are healed and sometimes people are just healed. What we do know is that we can prove that God created the universe. And if we can prove that, then miracles and healings aren't a big leap after all. So in your house churches, I'd love for you to discuss three questions, and these will be in the house church guide as well. First, have you ever experienced a miracle or, or healing, either, either yourself or been around when it's happened to somebody else? If so, start off by sharing that story. Two, in, in what ways do you think Jesus has become too common in Christianity today? What is he doing that we are missing? And finally, three, 
what do you, why do you think Jesus couldn't do miracles in Nazareth? Have some fun. Theorize, imagine, see if you can come up with some palatable explanation for it. I'm praying for you all today in these conversations. Thanks for letting me share my thoughts. Um, it's always an honor.